Amen. Let's pray. God, we ask now as we turn to your word that you would speak to us. Uh, we do not believe that this is, um, that this is a collection of stories that some humans wrote several thousand years ago, but we believe that this is the living, breathing, and active words of the living God. And so we don't study this book and we don't spend time reading it and learning about it and preaching about it uh, because it's interesting. We do those things, God, because it is in this book that we hear directly from you. And as much as we think we need other things, what we need most of all, above all else, is you. And so we ask, God, that you would meet with us now. I pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that it would be living and active. I pray that you would open our eyes to see, our hearts to receive what it is that you have to say to us this morning. And we ask, God, as we do so many weeks, that we would not leave this place unchanged because we have had an encounter with the living God. Thank you for who you are. Please help us to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning again. Good morning. Thank you. We're in Mark this morning. Mark chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 45. And we'll go through the end of the chapter. Oh, I left my water. Hold on. Critical error. That was just to give you time to find the text in your Bible. So we're ready to go. Mark 6, starting in verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened." When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, this past summer, uh, my family and I had the opportunity to go stay in a cabin uh, on a lake in the high Sierras. It was awesome. Um, and, and one of the, 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 the way that that kind of community worked is there's this kind of community of cabins kind of up the hill. And then down on the lake, there's this uh, significant Oh, that's probably overstating it. There's some docks down there. I was going to say significant network of docks. There's some docks down on the lake with kind of bays in them. And each kind of house in the community has a little bay in the dock down on the lake. And the place that we were staying uh, had a canoe and two kayaks available to use in their little bay down on the docks. Now, 
I'm like, you know, canoe, kayaks, great. But my kids were like, canoe, kayaks? This is amazing. And so every afternoon for the, the four or five days that we were there, uh, we would go down there and untie the, the canoes and the kayaks and go over to the shore and our kids would just paddle around in the lake. And you, want, you, want, you talk about being confused. You watch a five-year-old trying to paddle a kayak by himself, like a full-size adult kayak. Uh, it was a little bit rough the first couple days, but it was actually amazing by the end of the week how much they had gotten the hang of it and how fast they could move those boats around in the water. It was, it was really fun. The last full day that we were there, uh, my 10-year-old son and I got up before everybody else to go do an early morning kayak ride on the lake. A little, a little bro time, if you will. When the five-year-old woke up and found out that we had left him at home, he was none too happy, to say the least. Uh, but we got up uh, right as the sun was coming up over the mountains, walked down to the lake in the quiet of the morning. Uh, we undid the kayaks, the two kayaks. We undid them. We got in them. Uh, we started paddling out into the lake, and there's a little, a little island in the middle of the lake, and that we were going to head out towards that. So we, we start paddling out towards the island. And as we're going, I'm just like, this is awesome. It is, it is smooth sailing. We are making great time. It doesn't really feel like it's even that much of an effort. My 10-year-old is keeping up really easily. Like we're cruising towards that island in the middle of the lake. And about three quarters of the way there, I realized something. There was a reason it was so easy and we were moving so smoothly and so quickly. There was a wind blowing. Not like, I mean, I'm not going to overstate it, though that would make the story better. Not like a gale force wind, but a pretty decent wind was blowing that morning. And as we were heading towards the island, what I realized was that I couldn't even feel it. And it's because it was at our backs. And that's cool when you're going out. The problem is, and I hear a couple chuckles, is you got to come back to where you started from. So I started to get a little bit stressed about that part of the journey. Nothing we could do about it at this point. So we get to the island. We go around kind of to the far side of the island. It's not, it's not huge, but it's big enough that you can get out and walk around. We dock the canoes, watch the sun continue to rise. Earlier in the week, we'd seen a bald eagle. It's like swooping down over the water. So we watched for that. Just saw a couple of pigeons, but, you know, it's close. Got back in the kayaks. And we start paddling around the far side now of the island. And as we come around the protection of the island, what I had feared to be the case was the case. And there was a really strong wind and it was blowing at us. And so you come around the protection of the island and you catch that wind full in your face. And really quickly it became apparent the ride back to the dock was not going to be the same as the ride to the island. You're working twice as hard to go half as fast, if that. There are moments where it felt like you're paddling and you're not moving at all. And the problem is if you stop paddling, it's not like you just can rest there, right? Because the wind is just gonna blow you back to where you came from. It was, a, it, was, it was a rough go of it. There were moments where I was like, I'm not sure we're gonna make it back. We were making headway painfully because the wind was against us. There's an old Irish blessing uh, that some of you will have heard. I don't remember the whole thing. I looked it up this week, but I, didn't, I don't remember the whole thing. It starts off by this. It says, may the road rise to meet you. I don't really know what that means. But the next thing it says is, may the wind always be at your back. Why? 
Because it's a lot easier when the wind is blowing in the same direction that you're trying to go. But here's the thing about the wind. And it's what I experienced that morning on the lake up in the mountains. When the wind is blowing in the direction that you are trying to go, it is very easy to not even realize that the wind is blowing. It is very easy to forget that there's even something that is helping you along. Take, it, take, take whatever your activity of choice is, running, cycling, kayaking, walking the dog in the evenings, rollerblading. Uh, I don't know if people rollerblade anymore. Uh, skateboarding, even in your car. When the wind is at your back, it's like smooth sailing, not a lot of effort, very enjoyable. And because of the nature of the way that the wind works, it's really easy to not even realize that you have a wind at your back until you change direction or the wind changes direction. And the same is true in life. There are seasons of life that some of us will go through, not all of us, some of us will go through, where things are just clicking, right? It just feels like a lot more wins than losses. The, the grades are all A's. The, the promotions keep coming. The paycheck keeps going up. The, the bigger houses come. The, the kids are doing well. They get into good schools. I know a lot of people right now are like, I would like to experience this season of life that you're talking about, Pastor Gary. <laughs> I would too. The, the challenge with those seasons of life is it's easy to forget that there's a tailwind. It's very easy, especially in a place like the Bay Area, when things are going relatively smoothly, to start to think about how my skill, my success, my hard work, my gifts have gotten me all of good, these good things. But we're all going to go through seasons of life. And a lot more of you are going to be like, yep, I know this season that you're talking about, Pastor Gary. We're all going to go through seasons of life where we don't have a tailwind. Either we're going to change direction or the wind is going to change direction. And all of a sudden, it's going to become a headwind. And those are the seasons of life where it feels like you are paddling and paddling and not going anywhere. We would say spinning your wheels for those who are automobile folks. They're the seasons of life where it feels like you're working twice as hard and getting half as much. It's the seasons of life where it feels like anything that can go wrong does go wrong. And then you just start to expect it will go wrong. We are all going to have seasons of life where we are making headway painfully because the wind is against us. March of 2020, that was a change in direction for the whole world. And a lot of us are still feeling like we are fighting the headwinds that we started to fight. I, I used to say 18 months, but I think it's more than that. What, 19 months, 20 months ago? Some of us might be in a relationship right now that's like this, this, just, this relationship feels like a headwind. Some of us might be dealing with uh, health or sickness issues where, where to say making headwind or, or, or uh, making headway painfully is not just a theoretical term, it's actually a literal term. Like every day you're dealing with pain. Some of us might be in a job where it's like it just anything that can go wrong feels like it will go wrong. And it's just, it's like headwind after headwind after headwind. The title of my message today is The Struggle is Real. And the question I want to hang out over the rest of the sermon is this, why? Why does the struggle have to be real? If God is a good God, like we talk about, who gives good gifts to his children, 
if the evidence of his goodness is all around us, if he is sovereign and for us and not against us, why does so much of life still feel like it's a headwind? Why, does it, why do we still have to go through the hard things? Why do we still have to go through the junk and the garbage? Why, if God is for us and who can be against us, does it feel at times like the whole world is against us? Why does it feel like so much of life is making headway painfully because the wind is against us? My guess is the disciples in the story that we just read were asking similar questions of themselves or each other that night in the boat out on the Sea of Galilee. To understand what I think God is communicating to us in the verses that we just read, we must look at the context for what we just read. And what that means is, what does it come on the heels of? So last week, we looked at the previous passage to this one, which was the feeding of the 5,000. Very well-known story in Jesus' life. Uh, Elder, if you were here or watched it online, Elder Anthony preached a phenomenal message about what God is teaching us through the feeding of the 5,000. Here's the context for that. Jesus and his disciples are out in this desolate place. There's a huge crowd. A lot of scholars think it's actually 5,000 men, so probably way more than 5,000 people. It is, a mu- it is a music festival out in the middle of nowhere, and there's no food, and Jesus takes a few loaves and a few fishes, and he feeds the entire crowd with it. And here's a little bit of context that Mark doesn't give us, but the gospel writer John does, and I think it very much helps us understand the contrast between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, which we're looking at today, and it is this. John tells us in chapter 6, verse 15, that after Jesus fed the 5,000, they wanted to come and take him by force to make him king. They were so pleased with what he had done. They were so excited about the power and the miracle that he had just demonstrated. They were like, you are our guy, Jesus, and we want to make you king. And if I'm one of the disciples, as the day is getting long after the feeding of the 5,000, and we've just seen this miracle, and here's this crowd and this groundswell and this fervor of admiration and adulation, and they want to make Jesus king. If I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I signed up for. Now we can work with this. This is the kind of guy I want to follow. The wind is at their backs as they finish that day. And yet just a few hours later, here they are alone in the middle of the night on the sea, making headway painfully, struggling because the wind is against them. One moment, great success. Another moment, like the next moment, great struggle. And I do not think that is a coincidence. I do not think that is an accident. I think that Mark, or rather, I think God through Mark is trying to teach us something about what it means to follow God. And that's what I want us to see as we look at these verses together. Here's the first thing I want us to see. God sends us into struggle. God sends us into struggle. How's that for an encouraging first point? Look at verse verse 45 with me. It says, immediately, and if if you remember, way way back at the beginning of this gospel, the first chapter of Mark, that word immediately shows up almost a dozen times. It's why we're calling this series, Let's Go, because it's like, let's go. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. 
uh, that word, the verb in Greek that is translated in the ESV, he made, uh, it carries the idea of he forced or compelled with urgency. Why? Why did Jesus, why did Jesus tell his disciples, you got to get in the boat and get out of here right now? Most scholars believe it's because they were still so confused about his identity and the nature of following him that they were so susceptible in that moment of getting caught up in what the crowd wanted to do to crown Jesus and make him king. He's like, you're not ready for this. You need to get out of here. So he makes them get in the boat and leave without him. And they're probably like, well, what are you going to do? And he's like, I got other means of transportation, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. He sends them out. And where does he send them into? A storm. I mean, it, it doesn't say literally a storm. It, it could have just been a huge major wind, which is super annoying uh, if you've ever been in one. He sends them right into struggle. Jesus takes his disciples all coming off of this great success and he's God. He knows what he's doing. He sends them in the boat, out onto the boat to spend the entire night struggling into the wind because sometimes God sends us into struggle. And this just touches on one of the great themes of the gospel of Mark. And as I was preparing this, I was like, should I talk about this again? Because I feel like I'm talking about it every week. But Mark talks about it over and over. And so I'm going to talk about it again. He is talking about the cost of discipleship. It is not all sunshine and roses and the road rising up to meet you, whatever that means. And the wind always at your back when we are following Jesus with our lives. Sometimes God is not actually going to protect us from struggle but he is actually going to send us into struggle. Uh, I will never forget the first time uh, my wife and I took our firstborn baby to uh, her first doctor's checkup where she needed to get some shots. You know, it's funny, with the first kid, it's like I was taking time off of work to go to the doctor's appointments with Beth. And it's like, we have four now, and like one of my kids is in for surgery, and I don't even know about it. Beth just handles that. That's not true. That would never happen. That would, that's never happened. But I'm just saying, when you're first born, it's like you're there for everything. Uh, so we take her in for her shots. And, um, you know, if any of you have had kids and you've done this with a, an infant, you know what this is like. Like, th she's old enough at that point, whatever, six weeks, eight weeks, to know that I'm dad and Beth is mom and we're there to provide for her and to protect her. And she's learning to trust us, I, I hope. And we go into the doctor's office and the nurse is like, all right, it's time for the shot. And so what do you do? You hand your child over to the nurse and the, the baby is just assuming I have what's best in her, you know, her best interest at heart. And so obviously I'm, what I'm doing is for her good. And then, uh, you know, she takes out the syringe and flicks it. And then that syringe goes into the bottom of my child's foot. And the face that she made in that moment, I will take to my grave. The Corleones know nothing of the betrayal that my daughter expressed in that moment because it's like the eyes get wide as the pain starts to set in and the realization that you actually are allowing this to happen, that you are not stopping it from happening, that you have sent me into this situation. And before the scream comes out of the mouth, the look of disappointment and betrayal on my six weeks old's face will haunt me for the rest of my life. And that's just like it is with us and God. Because sometimes God doesn't protect us from the struggle. He actually sends us into it. And just like my baby getting her shots, our reaction is like, how could you do this to me? 
I thought you were good and gracious and kind and loving. I thought I was your child and you were going to protect me. How could you send me here? And we begin to question whether we actually are following God and whether we're actually doing the right thing and what this all means. We become confused. Let's go back to the prayer that we prayed earlier. Because it's like we get into situations where we're like, I thought this is what God wanted me to do. But this is so hard. It is such a struggle. I'm not sure anymore. Like, God, I was sure that you called me to move to the Bay Area. This is not me. Well, it is me, but it's a lot of other people too. And it's like, but this is so hard. Can it, this is a struggle. Did you, is this really you? God, I was sure this is the person that you wanted me to marry. But this is so hard. It is a, it's a struggle. It's, was this really from you? I, I thought this was the job that you opened up for me that I needed. But it stinks. And my boss is awful. And I'm tired of working 80 hours a week. It's hard. Is it really from you? And what we need to recognize today, even if we don't feel it, is that sometimes God sends us into struggle. So just because something is hard, just because it's uncomfortable, just because it feels wrong, it does not mean that God is not good. It does not mean that God does not love you. It does not mean that it was a mistake. It does not mean that you need to leave. There are seasons of life and he calls us from one to another. But we have to allow into our theology and our practical approach to life as followers of Jesus Christ that he may actually call us to places that we don't want to be. And we could be really uncomfortable and really unhappy and still be right in the middle of his will. Because God, just like he did for his disciples that night, sometimes sends us into struggle. So that's it. God sends us into struggle, first point. Next, two more. The second thing I want us to see is, is we're going to find some, hopefully some hope and encouragement. And then the last point I want us to uh, hopefully understand why God might do something like that to his children whom he loves so much. So, so God sends us into struggle, first point. Second point is this. Be encouraged because God sees us in the struggle. God sees us in the struggle. Look with me at verse 40, uh, well, 47, but we'll just pick up 46. Uh, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Again, uh, really interesting. Jesus sends his disciples away. He goes by himself up on the mountain to pray. Again, scholars uh, have different opinions of why, but one that really resonated with me is probably in Jesus' human nature, he's wrestling with some of the same issues that we're talking about right now. Like actually, God, it would be a lot easier to ride the tailwind of this crowd's praise of me than step into the headwind that I know you have for me later on. So he gets by himself with God to pray. Verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Now, most of us, when we think about this story about Jesus walking on the water, we think it's a story about one miracle. I would argue it's a story about three miracles. And this is the first one. Jesus saw his disciples in the middle of their struggle. The word that's translated in the ESV painfully in other places in the Bible is translated as torment. It's often used of people who are possessed by demons. 
And so I don't think Mark is saying that the wind was a demonic wind, but catch the picture of how miserable these guys were all night rowing into that wind that was tormenting them. And here we have in this verse, it tells us that Jesus saw them. Now, it's possible that that is because with his human eyes, he can see them out in the lake. It's possible that he sent them out in the boat, that the It's a full moon shining off the water. It's been like six or eight or 10 hours, but they've only made it 100 yards. And so he can still see them right there struggling against the wind. But I doubt it. The Sea of Galilee is a big body of water. They have been out there all night rowing against the wind. My my guess is they have made it at least some distance away from Jesus where Jesus set them off. And so I think they are beyond the sight of his human eyes but they are not beyond the sight of God's eyes. They are out there being tormented in the darkness, and yet Jesus still sees them because Jesus sees us in the struggle. I just recently finished a book called The Hunger Games. I didn't read it. I actually listened to it on audiobook, and I know I'm like a decade too late, and I know I'm probably also a decade too old, but... A uh, little insight into PG, I love a good dystopian story about like the crumble of civilization. Uh, don't read too much into that. I just like a good story. Uh, the Hunger Games is, is about this dystopian world in the future where this powerful capital city uh, uh, holds these different districts under kind of its thumb. And one of the ways that it does it is every year it takes two children from each of those districts, puts them in a huge arena, and has them fight to the death. And they televise it for the whole world to watch. Each child in the arena has a a coach or a mentor who is outside of the games who can help them at different points in the arena. Even though they are totally alone in the games, hiding in the woods or in the mountains or in the river or wherever it is, there's always a camera on them and their mentor or coach can always see them, can always see where they are, what they are doing and what they need. And at the risk of really debasing God's word by comparing it to the Hunger Games, catch the picture. The same is true in our lives. No matter where we are, no matter how dark it is, how dark the struggle, how far away or how alone we feel, God's eyes are always on us. One of the great challenges of going through dark seasons in life, one of the great challenges of the headwind seasons of life is how alone we feel. It's like it's just compounded by this aloneness. When we have a tailwind, when things are good and life is clicking and it's predictable and, and, and we're getting a lot of wins, it's like uh, when we pray, we can sense God hearing it and we see his answers to those prayers. When we read his word, it's like there's life and joy in it. When we go to church, we feel encouraged and lifted up. When we're around other followers of Jesus, we're like, these are my people. But when the headwinds come, When the wind direction changes, it's amazing how fast that stuff goes away. It's like like your prayers, if, if we're even praying, it's like they're just hitting the ceiling and coming back down and there is no sense that there's a God who's hearing them. It's like to read his word doesn't, doesn't encourage. It's like, it's frustrating. You don't get uplifted when you come to his house. You don't get encouraged by other people because there's this just distinct feeling of aloneness. Just like probably the disciples on the lake that night who were out in the middle of the darkness being tormented. And yet even in the midst of that, we are told that God saw them. 
And somebody needs to hear that this morning. In the midst of your struggle right now, no matter how alone you feel, you are not alone. God sees you. Uh, it, it, um, it echoes one of the great passages of the Old Testament. At the beginning of Exodus, uh, we're told how God's people, the Israelites, have been taken slaves by the Egyptians. And we're told about how brutal the Egyptians are, brutally the Egyptians are treating God's people, the Israelites. And this is what it says uh, in Exodus 2, verses 23 to 25. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. You hear the, the wind was against them. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And this is it, verse 25. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. In Genesis 22, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac, do you remember the mountain that he goes to? It's Mount Moriah. It, it's, it's, it's the site of the temple. In the, it's the same place that the temple is built in the New Testament. A lot of amazing theology there. Uh, in a lot of our translations, it will translate Moriah as the place where God will provide. But the Hebrew verb that is the root of that word is the verb to see. So a more literal translation of Moriah is the place where God will see or the place where God will see to it. Because no matter what the struggle, no matter how dark the darkness, God sees you. Second Chronicles 16, nine, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God saw the people of Israel, God saw the disciples in the boat and God sees you. So God sends us into struggle, but God sees us in the struggle. And then finally, God shows himself in our struggle. God shows himself in our struggle. Uh, pick me up now in the second half of verse 48. It says about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. It's a weird phrase. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to it. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. So here are the disciples out in the middle of the night in the boat, struggling, struggling, struggling. Jesus, where are you? What is going on? Why did he, what is his deal? Why did he send us here? This is, this is awful. And then, second miracle of the story. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. Now, when you study this passage, uh, you will find that critical scholars, so critical scholars, what that means is scholars who study the book of, who study the Bible, but do not believe that it is in the inspired word of God. They study it as a historical document. Critical scholars, it's amazing the explanations they come up with for Jesus walking on the water. Here's some of the stuff they'll say. Uh, he wasn't actually walking on the water, he was walking on the shore, and the disciples just thought he was walking on the water. He wasn't actually walking on the water, there was actually a sandbar in the middle of the lake, right next to the boat, and Jesus was walking on the sandbar in the lake. Time does not permit us to kind of break down what the implications of those ideas are, like Jesus swam out to the sandbar, then got up and, tricked his disciples, uh, but here's what we need to know. The way that sentence is constructed in Greek, it says this, 
He walked on the water. He walked on the water. There would have been other ways to explain it if he hadn't been walking on the water. What the verse says is that Jesus walked on the water. And, and for those who, who don't want to give it that, who, who don't want to admit that that is possible or that that actually happens, happen, the problem is you miss kind of the whole thrust of what Mark or what God through Mark is communicating to us through this passage. In the midst of the disciples' struggle, remember, they are still struggling to know who Jesus is. These are the ones who not that long ago said, who is this guy? And, and we don't have time to go over it, but the last verse of this section says they did not understand about the loaves. It's another way of saying they still don't get who he is. And so Jesus sends them out into this struggle. And then he shows up in the middle of it, not just as Jesus the rabbi. He shows up as Jesus the son of God. He says, in the midst of your struggle, let me just clear this up for you. I am God. And he says it, he shows them not just with his actions, but with his words. And there's four ways he does it. So let's, let's run quickly through this. So fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now listen, the disciples would have been very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, which is our Old Testament. And so they would have been very familiar with Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. This is what Job, the book of Job, says about God in Job 9.8. It says, God is, God is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. So what does the Old Testament say about God? He walks on the water. And what does the New Testament say about God? He walks on the water. Jesus is like, I don't submit to the laws of nature. They submit to me because I wrote them. And then we get this funny phrase that says he meant to pass them by. And it's, when I first started, this, started studying this, this week, I was like, what is, that? what is that all about? Like, he didn't really want them to see him. Like, he was trying to sneak past them and get to the other side so he could jump out and surprise them. Like, hey, beat you here. Not at all. Again, if we go to the Old Testament, Exodus thirty-three nineteen, Moses asks God to show me your glory. And what does God say? He says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And then three verses later, verse 22, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. I don't have a slide for this one, but Elijah, God reveals himself to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, verse 11, it says this. He said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. What is this deal about Jesus meant to pass them by? One scholar says, what he, what, another way we tra could translate this is he, he meant to manifest himself to them. This is how God shows his glory to his people. He passes them by. Why is it that? I don't know. It's, he's God. He can do it however he wants. But we cannot miss the connection from he meant to pass them by to the God of the Old Testament who passes by people when he shows them their glory. It is what God does. It is how he shows himself to his people. And then finally, uh, in verse, sorry, in verse 50, when Jesus actually speaks, he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Number one command in all of scripture, do not be afraid, but that's not the point. Those middle three words, it is I. The ESV translates it, it, translates it as it is I. In Greek, 
It's two words, ego eimi, which a literal translation is I am. Jesus says, take heart, I am. Well, I am who? I am God. I am the great I am. I am the one who revealed himself to Moses and to Egypt or to the Israelites in Egypt by saying, who sent you? I am. And then finally, third miracle. Jesus gets into the boat with them and the wind ceases. Jesus arrives and the struggle is dissipated. God shows himself in our struggles. Why do we have to go through struggles? Because sometimes it is the only way for our eyes to be opened to who God is and what he can do. Here's the thing about storms. Storms reveal weakness. If you were to go travel in the southeastern portion of our country, especially in the communities right on the coast around the Gulf of Mexico, you would see there many houses which are built up on stilts. There's literally a gap between the bottom of the house and the ground. You will see shutters on those houses and they are not like, you know, wicker, decorative, uh, balsam wood shutters. They're like iron, steel shutters that can close over every window in the house. If you could take a cross section of some of those houses and I'm not a contractor or a builder, so I'm wandering way off my reservation of knowledge, but they are not the typical two by four uh, drywall construction. They are, they are built with concrete and commercial grade steel. Why? Because if you live on the Gulf of Mexico, the question is not if a hurricane is coming. It is when the hurricane is coming. How powerful is the hurricane going to be and how many more are going to come behind it? And after the storm comes through, you can see very clearly which houses were strong enough to weather the storm and which houses were weak, too weak. I was going to say weak enough to weather the storm. Which houses were too weak to weather the storm because they're not standing anymore. And struggles and storms do the same things in our life. They reveal weakness. And thank God for that because if there's no storm, there is no need for God. If there is no struggle, there is no need for Jesus to get in the boat with us. But when we are weak, he is strong. It is in our struggles, it is in our weaknesses that God can bring us to the place where we are ready to accept our need for him. It is in our struggles that the, the whole idea of self-sufficiency is crushed. And thank God for that. Because we get confused when things are smooth and good and easy and predictable because we can't feel the wind that is blowing behind us. We think it's us. We think we're good and we're smart and we're talented and we're capable and look at what the work of my hands have done. But when the wind changes direction and starts blowing right in our faces, we come to realize pretty quickly that that is an illusion. That we cannot do the things that need to be done. That we cannot row ourselves to the other side of the sea unless God shows up and does something that we cannot do for ourselves. So why do we have to go through struggles? Because sometimes it is the way that we get a picture of who God really is. There can, there can, may we thank God for our struggles. As counterintuitive as that is, I don't know how to do that myself. But may we come to the place where we can thank God that he sends us into struggles because we meet him and know him in a way in our struggles we never could if we didn't go through them. 
Uh, let's, let's finish with this, and Junior and the, the worship team can start making their way up. Do you notice, we kind of skipped over it, did you notice how Mark told us about what time it was that Jesus showed up? He says, at the fourth watch of the night, which in doing that, Mark is just borrowing the Roman way of breaking down the night, which was in four watches, literally, that you would stay awake to, to watch and guard from six to nine, nine to 12, 12 to three, or three to six. Jesus shows up in the fourth watch of the night. As one translation, a different translation than the ESV I looked at this week says, uh, it translated it by saying, as the night was coming to an end. How long did the disciples have to struggle? All night long. They had to struggle all night long. And it was only when it got to be the darkest that Jesus showed up. Church, the night is always darkest before the sun shows up. And what I love about this story is that it is not the only time that Jesus showed up unexpectedly in the fourth watch of the night. Because there, there was another night coming, another dark night where, where hope seemed to be lost, where those disciples were making headway painfully because the wind was against them. But during the fourth watch of the night, the women got up and they headed to the tomb. And as the sun was coming up, they found that that tomb was empty because the night is always darkest before the sun shows up. He is not the God who only tramples on the waves. He is the God who trampled all over death. Howie and I eventually made it back to the docks. Took us more than twice as long to get back as it did to go out. But here's the thing. There was a sweetness in it. There was a sweetness in the struggle. It was actually a better, more rewarding experience because there had been some adversity, because we'd had to work for it. And the same can be true in life. There can be a sweetness in our struggle when we can recognize that it is not up to us, that we are not alone, that God sees us in our struggle and that he is actually revealing himself to us in a way we never would have seen had we not gone into the headwind that he just sent us into. Whatever your headwind is today, my prayer is that you find hope in that. As, as, as far away from our experience as that feels, to actually look at our difficulties, look at our struggles, and say there can be a sweetness in it, there can be. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is in the boat, we don't have anything to fear. The wind is no match for God. Let's pray. God, this is, uh, this is a message which is um, much easier to talk about than it is to live out. And I feel that distinctly in my own life, even as I stand up here saying these things. God, we typically flee from struggle. We typically just, we, 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 
we flee from difficulty. We want, we, we just want the, the wind at our backs always. And when, when the direction changes, God, it's like we crumble. Like what, what is wrong? Yeah, God, we know that you are a God who experienced the wind in your face unlike any of us ever will. You don't ask us to walk through anything that you have not walked through yourself. And your promise to us is that regardless of what we are going through, you see us in it and you reveal yourself to us in it. And more God than we need to be taken out of the wind, we need you in the wind with us. I pray that you would encourage someone today. I pray through the power of your spirit, God, that you might allow us as your children to walk and live in such a countercultural way to the world around us that we might actually find a joy and a sweetness in the intimacy and communion we find with you in the midst of our dark moments. Only you can make something like that happen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to sing a song of response. If you feel like you have any business that you need to do with God in this moment, please take this moment to do it. If you don't know what it's like to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there would be no better time than now to do it. And I or any one of our elders or worship leaders or ministry leaders would love to talk to you about that after service. If you are uh, walking through a headwind, if you're, if you're paddling into a headwind in your life right now, I would encourage you just to talk to God about that. Ask him to remind you that he sees you and that he is showing himself to you in a way that you could not see otherwise were you not to go through it. Let's worship, and then I'll come back up for the benediction.
is Christ in me. Where you are and where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Is Christ in me. And Lord, I need you. Oh, I time. Lift your voice, a cappella. And Lord, I Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved and you're prayed for and you are sent.